Hello and welcome to episode 1476 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, and today we are on part two of our seven-episode series on the state of advanced analysis in other sports, which we are calling the Multi-Sport Sabermetrics Exchange. For anyone who missed the intro to the first part, we're taking some time during the slow holiday weeks here to talk about the past, present, and future of advanced analysis in a dozen different non-baseball sports with some people who've been among the leading lights in those sports analytical movements. We covered American football and basketball yesterday, and today we are turning our attention to hockey and cricket. So without further preamble, it is time to talk my favorite non-baseball sport, as a spectator experience at least, hockey. And to do that, we are bringing on the brains behind EvolvingHockey.com, Josh and Luke Youngren. They are twin brothers, and they are among the foremost hockey analysts still out there in the public sphere, at least for now. They also contribute to hockey graphs, and I don't know if there's a a seniority here. Is one of you one minute older or something, and and I should introduce you first? (laughs) Well, first of all, thank you for having us. Yeah, yeah thank uh, you so much. Technically, I am Josh, and I am six minutes older than my brother. <laughs> Which so. I, I am Luke, so, you know, he's a, yeah, he's a little older, but, you know, so. I, don't, I don't hold that against him. Yeah, in the spirit of, of twindom and everything like that, I technically I, I am the older brother, but it doesn't really apply. <laughs> okay. Well, you've already warned me that you sound similar, so you will identify yourselves, and, and we'll do our best, but uh, you're, you're a hive mind for the purposes of the podcast and, and the site, I suppose, at least from a yes. public-facing perspective. And you were just filling me in that you were both baseball fans before you were hockey fans and, and got into hockey analysis via baseball analysis. So what was the pathway for you to switch over from one to the other? Yeah, well, it was uh, it was kind of interesting. We were always, as we were mentioning before, but yeah, we, we were longtime baseball fans. And what we also did, kind of an interesting thing, we played baseball growing up and then we went to college. And surprisingly enough, we were both music majors. So when we were in college, we did music and there isn't a lot of time to do sports and music in school together. And so we didn't play. We stopped. And I, because we were in, we were in Wisconsin going to school, I didn't really follow, I guess, our team is the twins. And we've been following them for years. But when I got out of school, I was just, both of us were pretty bored. And it, we, we got out in the fall because we stayed a little later. And our dad was a um, huge, you know, he grew up in Minneapolis playing in the, on the rinks and the lakes here. And he, you know, would just have the wild on, which is, you know, the team, that's our name. (laughs) And uh, and that was kind of like we had kind of at the same time been getting and reading more about the baseball stuff and kind of just as something to do after school to pass time started following hockey and at the same time pretty much started reading some of the early or at that time they had been a f- couple years along uh mm-hmm. and so right pretty much our hockey fandom started along with kind of looking into the stats side you know the analytics side whatever you want to call it for hockey and it's been basically just a like a pure kind of started as a hobby and then just became just like a pure obsession and now it's we just do it all the time now <laughs> yeah and i i'd say i think like probably the intro for baseball stats was probably just like the Fangraphs glossary. Like, uh-huh. I just think that is just so well made and it's yeah. really clear. And it's a, you know, it's kind of always something that we've like looked at Fangraphs as kind of like a model for, I mean, our own website, but especially their glossary was super clear. And there's just a lot of really, you know, with hockey, hockey stats, a lot of it happens on Twitter. So it's not very like documented, mm-hmm. but baseball has a really rich history that's documented in, you know, like Tango's blog and, Right. You know, all types of message boards and stuff that you can go back and look at. So it's just, I don't know, it's just kind of the, you know, I guess the 
the the the nerds in us just would just sit on my phone and I'd go through just the various discussions that were happening at the time and I think that you know Fangraphs really helped kind of me get an idea for what was going on and I just yeah found it really interesting well, you'll be well-equipped to answer this question then, I think. How would you place hockey on the spectrum of ease of analysis when it comes to other sports? So if we do a 1 to 10 scale and 10 is baseball, so it's uh, structured in a way that lends itself to analysis, and then 1 is the least easily analyzed sport imaginable, pretty opaque to analysis, where would you put hockey on that scale? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I guess I have, I would say it's below a five, probably. Uh-huh. I don't know if I'd go maybe like a three, I guess. Maybe I, I, a little maybe a little easier, but uh, I think the, the biggest problem really is the strength states and the goalie. So mm-hmm. with baseball, right, and with basketball too, you have one strength state. I mean, baseball doesn't, there's not like you just remove an outfielder, but like, you know, in hockey, you have the different strength states um, depending upon if a penalty is taken, then a team gets a power play. In overtime, it's three on three. So instead of five on five, it's three on three. And, you know, that can be, and then you can have throw in the goalie. So you can have basically 12 basic strength states. And a lot of the time when you're looking at analysis, you have to look at, each one of those is a separate basically game like they're all separate kind of and that makes it really difficult from like a data side because you have so much more data that you have to separate mm-hmm. and I, I just to kind of piggyback on that i think it also kind of the, the it, it depends what you're trying to do with the analysis i suppose so i would say that for right now just to get an idea about how good players are i i think that that's even though it it from a, a data side or a statistical side, it can be kind of complicated. You can do it fairly well. There are still, I think, limitations with just we are missing certain pieces in order to say if you want to if you want to have a player, you know, like tell a player exactly what to do in this situation. Hockey is a very fast moving sport. You're on ice. You know, it's it's a very skilled. Well, I mean, not to say that any other sport isn't as skilled, but it, it takes a, it's a different kind of, I guess, instruction that you would maybe try and use to help a player for instance, you know, learn or or get better uh, Mm -hmm. in a certain situation. And that is very difficult. And I don't know if we don't have the data, at least in the public. And I I would say it's still not necessarily there on a proprietary uh, kind of uh, level either. Yeah. Ice is slippery. It seems hard. (laughs) (laughs) So I know hockey analysis goes back a bit. Tom Tango, who most people know from his baseball analysis, started consulting for NHL teams in the mid-2000s. Hockey Prospectus, then called Puck Prospectus, was started in 2009. And Rob Volman, who now works for the Kings, did his hockey abstract and hockey prospectus books and co-wrote the book Stat Shot, which came out a few years ago. But can you give me kind of a, a brief history of hockey analysis, hockey sabermetrics? So roughly when did the early efforts show up and at what pace has it kind of caught on and maybe some of the major breakthroughs or or advances in the availability of the data? Yeah. So technically, hockey stats or hockey analytics have been around for quite a while. I mean, I I believe the league started tracking goals and assists uh, and plus minus, believe it or not, which is like we talked about a little bit, but in like mm-hmm. the 40s, I think, or maybe the 50s. I think plus minus was and, like the 60s. Yeah, I'm not super and, sure on that. So but. just to be clear, points is is probably the most well-known hockey stat, which is a combination of goals and assists. So if a mm-hmm. player is on the ice, or if a goal is if they score a goal, obviously, and then an assist is given out to the, fir- the, the prior two skaters who touched the puck or assisted on that goal. Um, plus minus has been around for a long time, and that's uh, it's kind of an up like how many goals did your team allow and or score and allow when you were on the ice? So it's the differential, but there's some weird caveats and 
Uh, I don't want to go on a long rant here, but it's not a very good stat. And <laughs> so that was kind of technically the original stuff. But they, I believe in the, and I, I, the years are a little bit fuzzy for me, but I, I want to say in like the maybe the mid to late 90s is when they started tracking so actual time on ice. So how, how long has a player been on the ice? Because hockey players go on and off the ice. They have shifts and that all adds up. Uh, and that was, I think, the late 90s. And then they started doing a little bit more tracking in the early 2000s. But there was some uh, in terms of events. So shots, hits, giveaways, those kind of things. They did a little bit of them. But it really and there, there actually were some people very early on who did some very good work. There's one of the very first people who looked at any kind of stuff that might be considered more advanced stats, if you will, quote unquote, was a guy named Alan Ryder. Who, who did a lot of work in the early 2000s, but really the the start of it all was in probably 2007-2008 season. Mm-hmm. And that was when the NHL introduced their, I think it's a couple different names that people know it by, but their hit system, their RTSS system, what is commonly referred to as play-by-play data, where they actually put people in the, like, in the arenas or like watching the game and they would track uh, play-by-play events and where those events occurred in like an XY pattern, basically. So coordinates for events. And that was the kind of the first big innovation in anything that would be described as hockey stats. And so a lot of stuff, a lot that was kind of the big pinnacle of where everything started out. Uh, and then after that, there's a lot more that we could get into too, but that's kind of the trajectory of it. And then since then, it's kind of just snowballed from there. Yeah. And- I guess I can just add on probably because the yeah the real like basically modern hockey statistics start in the 2007 2008 season because it's actually you know if you watch a hockey game it's very difficult to to keep track of all of the players coming in and off the ice because they about players skaters take about 25 shifts a game and that's you know 12 skaters on each team uh no no no, sorry 18 Mm -hmm. so that's a lot of data to keep track of and and the most important thing is knowing what happened when each skater was on the ice. So lining up the shift data is um, with the events data is kind of like the whole start of like the modern statistics. And that's really like where it started. And then just like, yeah, you get into like different types of like, yeah, there's a lot of different things that happen with that data, but that's basically like the genesis of the original type. Yeah. And what were some of the major insights associated with that movement? If there was sort of a an on-base percentage of hockey, were, were, were there things on par with that? Yeah. So I, I'd say probably most important kind of advancement at that, at that time and still today uh, is something called Corsi, uh, which is funny. Hockey developed this funny like naming system where <laughs> right. they named- it's not very um, descriptive. <laughs> yeah. It's, Corsi and Fenwick are the type of shots. So they're in, in ho- you know, there are four types of shots that the NHL, or basically in hockey. So you have a goal, which would be a shot that ends up a goal, a shot that is stopped by the go- saved by the goalie. And then you have a missed shot. So a shot that's taken at the net that misses, but or not at the net, it misses the net. And then a block shot. So that's a shot that is taken and blocked by an opposing player. So there's four. And so Corsi is all four of those. So they just generally it's called like, I mean, it should be called shot attempts. So that's any puck directed at the net, regardless of what happened. And then you have un- unblocked shot attempts, which is Fenwick. And that would be everything but blocked shots. Um, and so the early research essentially found that Corsi was or uh, shot attempts is a better predictor of future goals than actual goals. So 
that would probably be the first real advancement of probably that era. And is, that 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 kind of took the form just to jump in here of, of what generally is pretty like Corsi four percentage. It, it just looks at a differential, and a lot of times it would be broken down into strength saints, so even strength five on five. You would look at did your team have say your team had twenty shots for and they let twenty you know fifteen shots against that would they'd have a plus five differential or in that percentage form and using those game by game was a very early on in the late kind of 20 or I guess aughts the that was the the early innovations were using those kind of looking at how is a team controlling what was called then possession so it was kind of this proxy for the idea of is your if you're shooting more you're controlling the ice more you're, you have more offensive time you're not allowing the other team to get as many attempts or, or chances and mm-hmm. that was the early research looked at that and Teams that had a higher, you know, they led the league in that. There was this understanding that they were they were probably the better teams, and they had a generally had a better a, a higher chance of you know doing well for the rest of the season or maybe in the playoffs. Uh huh. And so there are parallels with some other sports here, other continuous motion sports, uh, soccer, basketball. You have plus minus or or expected goals maybe, and maybe hockey has some variety of of win expectancy. I mean, are there stats and concepts that were borrowed from baseball or from other sports that kind of helped kickstart things? Could you skip a step because it was done somewhere else and you could kind of map it onto hockey? Yeah, there actually was, and that that was I don't I don't I don't know if we want to get like super technical, but it is kind of it, really interesting. I think that hockey, especially in the history of it, is has really looked at other sports for what they've done because a lot of other sports got this their their data or their whatever you want to call it before hockey and developed methods. And one of the ones that came out of that idea of shot attempts or looking at that from a differential or is expected goals, as you mentioned, which I believe was started in like kind of came from soccer. But that is a that was then applied to in a similar or analysis in a similar way. And what that is, is actually a, an actual model. So it's a it's a binary classification. Uh, you could do logistic regression. There are several machine learning type uh, methods that do that. But what that ultimately does is it, it assigns a probability for how likely a given shot will turn into a goal. And so hence the name expected goals. And you can do that in, at a shot level and assign a probability for every shot and sum those or do various things with those. And that then is kind of takes the form of like expected goals for percentage or something like that or a differential. And you could use that for team or player analysis. It also is a really good way to kind of separate the goalie out for skater analysis. It also was very early on. Some of the simpler models, it's kind of a, a tangent here, but as you get better at predicting goals, you actually start to then get closer to what, you know, actual goal scoring looks like, which is less <laughs> which is really noisy and less repeatable than something that's maybe a simpler model that's more like a weighted shot or something, you know, like a, a bend on the ice kind of uh, danger zone type look or uh, high danger stuff. And so expected goals was, was one. And then maybe Luke can talk about some of the basketball stuff. Yeah. So I think the um, right now, probably the, the biggest things that have been taken were in about like 2010 or well, um, the NBA or they developed some uh, adjusted plus minus and regularized adjusted plus minus or RAPM, which is similar to ESPN has a uh, real plus minus or RPM, which is mm-hmm. much more complicated. But basically, um, it's a similar basically Brian McDonald, who used to work for the Florida Panthers. Um, he wrote a couple papers in 2012 and 2013. And then Andrew Thomas, who used to work for the wild and now works for the SMT, which is a company that is a player tracking. They developed, um, kind of multiple, their, um, basically stint level regression models for analyzing players. And that is directly drawn off the work that was done in basketball by, I think, like Joseph Sill in 2010 added regularization to his method that was developed by... Dan uh, Rosenbaum, Dan, I think? Dan Rosenbaum in 2004. So a lot of the hockey 
hockey stats have yeah have definitely drawn off of the work that was done in soccer and basketball, but it's a little bit more complicated because of the strength states. So Brian McDonald did, developed some um, special teams or power play and penalty kill type models that do that. So yeah, a lot of this stuff in hockey right now definitely has drawn on the work that was done in other sports. Was there an early adopting team or coach? Was there one organization that is most associated with analytics in the way that the A's were in baseball or the Rockets were in basketball? Yeah, I mean, I think early on, and that's the thing is that and it's it's kind of the same in every sport, but especially in hockey, there's this kind of culture of you don't tell anything, even you know, in Injuries are reported as a upper right, body yes. lower injury. There's no, there's like secrets are kept, and so it, it it's still kind of not clear. You hear rumblings, but early on there were a couple teams. There were the L.A. Kings in the kind of right around. I'm trying to, th- I can't even remember the years, but it was like around the turn of the decade, I suppose, and then into the mid, like the maybe about seven years ago or eight but years I, ago. I don't know if they and were actively no, but they, looking at that. They so just ended point, up being very good. Yes. Yeah, my point is that like the Kings and the Blackhawks were teams, and they just were also very good, but they did things that influenced kind of what other teams were doing and what they did lined up with kind of ways that would lead to maybe better results, which is kind of gets back to this idea of really controlling zone time, getting a lot of shots, shot attempts on net, which is more just a symptom of just being a good team. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so what you then from there got is kind of this realization after the fact that maybe it's not all about shots because what teams, there's kind of a funny term in hockey that more on the stat side is something that you might call the gaming Corsi is what you started to see some teams do is they would just shoot anything because they you know (laughs) that would be the thing that and so there's now kind of a running joke a little bit about how a team's maybe trying to game Corsi in a game because they're just like but we know from looking at expected gold models that for instance shots that come from the blue line are really far away in the offensive zone are really pretty low probability unless you are good at generating a rebound off of those shots and so that kind of then led to more of a look at creating good quality chances so you do see some teams now I would say right now the biggest one is probably the Carolina Hurricanes are the number one team they currently employ uh, Eric Tolsky who was one of the early he really pushed kind of after a couple years of the the tracking I guess the the RTSS or the play-by-play data he did a lot of work in the public that proposed a lot of ideas about kind of are still really prevalent in a lot of the research and and you can see some of the stuff they do leads to those kind of results uh but again it's 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 kind of shrouded and there's not a lot that comes out from the teams and are there major misconceptions that have been overturned things that people used to think and say about hockey that have not really been borne out by the numbers yeah i mean there's probably a lot i think in terms of uh like one that immediately i don't know why this is just a pretty specific thing, but there was a uh, kind of the thought of the stay at home defenseman was so uh, the defenseman would be the basically like backs. Although there's been kind of a movement to try to call defensemen and forwards, not call them that, call them defensemen backs because they don't. But there was this like thought that, oh, well, you have this like guy who plays a whole bunch of minutes and and he just kind of like stands in the defensive zone and blocks shots. I think I think that has been really disputed as <laughs> a, a valuable uh, commodity, I guess, because it's been basically shown that blocking shots by defensemen that used to be really like that would be tracked and that was thought of as a very valuable skill a a defenseman that could block a lot of shots but what actually ends up happening is that means that they're just stuck in their defensive zone a lot more Uh um and so that what in actuality the best defensemen are those that are able to just move the puck out of the zone so the best in like what they would say transition so i think that's a pretty big one um shot yeah shot blocking is actually not good well i mean it, it it's it's more 
complicated than that. Yeah, but, there are always caveats. Yeah, obviously. there are caveats, but like generally, like the you know big minute shot blocking defenseman is not really a. You don't really want to try to have your defenseman just stand in the defensive zone and block shots. I think another thing is a lot of people would value faceoff skill, and that's basically been shown to be not really like that valuable. It is a you know it can be valuable in very specific situations, but a lot of the time coaches would just be or teams would be looking for a, a player who was really the only skill they had was winning faceoffs and. Most of the time, those guys were very were not good. Um, there's a player like Jarrett Stoll who played for the Kings, and he had just like ridiculous faceoff numbers, but everything else he did was just like really bad. Uh, and so, coaches they wanted him. So when they're in the third period and there's five minutes left, and they you know are taking a defensive zone draw, they can put their fourth line center who has like a 60% faceoff winning percentage out there and then he wins a faceoff and he's going to stand out there for 30 minutes and just get blown up in the defensive zone so it's just like those are a lot of like kind of misconceptions and I mean there's others but those are like the two that come to mind for me I guess how much better than 50 50 is a faceoff specialist Oh man, it. The, so that's the thing in hockey. A lot of the um, percentages and anything like even even from a betting standpoint is if you're, if you're getting better than sixty percent at you know your home win probability, like your actual accuracy, that's that's basically impossible. Hockey's such a noisy sport. But I, in faceoff, I actually don't. I mean, like there's a there's a few guys like Gostad, Paul Gostad, uh, Jared Stoller. They you could find these types of players who coaches and organizations clearly valued from the tradition of hockey, which is like what Luke was talking about is blocking shots you know they're gritty they're tough they throw hits around they do all this stuff that looks really flashy they're really big like that's also another thing that has kind of shown we are not we but the community has kind of shown that there's not really any correlation to size with skill which mm-hmm. was a you, you still see it in the draft now where, where teams will you get in the third fourth round or fifth round and teams just take like six five or six six defensemen because they're just big that's the only reason why and you see some of the best defensemen in the league are under six feet. I mean, f- there's several defensemen who are, you know, five, six, five, seven, who just, they are amazing. And, you know, there's not really any correlation there. And I don't know. I'm trying to think, what is the faceoff? I, I guess so. Uh, I just, I just looked it up. Ryan O'Reilly is a center. He's actually probably the best faceoff in the last three years. He's got a 58% yeah, winning uh-huh. percentage. So, okay. yeah, which is like, that's about the best you're going to get. And uh, that's like kind of the top for most of the percentages in terms of team yeah. evaluation and player evaluation. You're not getting anything really over. I mean, in small samples, small minutes, maybe over, you know, 65, 70 or something like that in any differential. Right. Yeah, percentage. it's mostly like a so like for reference in a, in a season, like if a team has over 55 percent Corsi four, so that would be they took 55 percent of the total shots in a total shot attempts in a game. That would be like really good. Like that's like a very good number. So, yeah, it's 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 pretty small from like, you know, I mean, you'll get teams that like are below 40 like those are the teams that are like tanking yeah there's, um, but... there's some uh, historical teams and i don't want to ban i don't want to just ramble here too much but i got to give a shout out to the 14 15 teams of the uh the it was the buffalo sabers edmonton oilers arizona coyotes uh before i've uh, you probably heard of Connor mcdavid um mm-hmm. but for anyone who's listening doesn't know he's he's he is like the best player in the league and he's just an absolute force on the ice and he's still really young and yeah people kind of compare him to like the mike trout of yeah. hockey yes. a little bit yes um, right yeah, but he's he's not as well rounded as a, of a player as Mike Trout is. No, he's basically just like an like an offensive like unicorn. Yeah. Like, but his defense is really bad. But he's like the greatest offensive player since like Gretzky. So it's like, yeah, I mean, you kind he's I, not very well rounded. I, I wanted but, to say the 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 Sabers that year are like at least in the data we have since two thousand seven. I believe they're the lowest 
team that we can look at in terms of like percentages and they had it was like i mean i think they were under 40 percent in terms of their course yeah goal, which is just absolutely atrocious it's terrible like, it's yeah. really really bad but and so yeah anyway, anyway yeah <laughs> well i was gonna ask you and maybe you just sort of answered it i don't know but have there been sabermetric darlings over the years or punching bags of the sabermetric oh, community yeah. particular players who sort of diverged from the mainstream perception in a, a dramatic way yeah there there are there have been it's it there are some interesting you know as, as we mentioned like being hockey and baseball fans there are very interesting parallels to the kind of ways that the saber mix community in baseball at least publicly will look at and kind of hold these certain players up i mean being twins fans you know we've followed williams Estadio right since like he has been in the in the organization and mm-hmm. i read articles about him early on about in his how he's just like never walked or struck out and i was like what like who is this guy right and there's there's certain players like that that kind of are brought up like that but the the very so and this gets us into a kind of another area of some of the i guess philosophical aspects of hockey stats is this idea of prediction or predict you know repeatability is something that has been used a lot in hockey is how repeatable year over year is a stat that had been used as a, a, a what was thought of at the time to be a good way to validate a metric and now it's techn- it's not really thought of it that way anymore but prediction or the idea of this stat will lead to like this is if a team is good in now in this stat that means they're going to win games that's like a been a pretty big bedrock for validating and using stats um that are more on the advanced side and there are some players who do those things really well but they actually maybe they they do they they shoot the puck a lot and that's good they don't allow a lot of attempts or maybe they're really good at generating like higher quality shots and they don't allow a lot but that isn't technically like they're not scoring goals and so there's this kind of weird disconnect where there are players who you can see they should have a much higher shooting percentage you know more of their shots should go in or more of their team's shots should go in when they're on the ice because we know that these things are they go back and forth but there's some like there's an example of uh I think the Leafs, for instance, the Maple, Toronto Maple Leafs, they went after uh, Cody Franzen, was was one of the early defensemen, who had just great shot attempt numbers. But whenever he's on the ice, they just, for whatever reason, he, he just, all he did was like lead to shots, but they didn't really lead to goals. And over enough time, you can see how that kind of goes up against certain things. Another one, like Sean Bergenheim was another one that kind of got traded around from a couple of the more friendly teams or teams that had, you know, smaller departments that were looking at this stuff. So it's kind of an interesting dilemma in a way about that. Yeah, I think, well, and kind of to piggyback on that, I think, well, so I, I guess to get back to the original question, I think probably a player like Jay Bomeister is who plays for the Blues. And like, it, this is kind of goes back to that, like, stay at home defenseman. Those are just players that they just get like lit up in the defensive zone but like for whatever reason there's not a lot of goals that go in against them and so like that's a player that that would be considered probably like oh he just he just won a Stanley Cup with the Blues St. Louis Blues a couple years ago and he was playing like 25 26 minutes a night which is a lot like you don't ever get over 30 a game normally so but his his a lot of his more kind of advanced I guess if you will metrics were just awful like yeah I think and then on the other side I think like you know I mean I'll just say like like a player like Jared Spurgeon who's a defenseman that plays for the wild right now he's just really small and he just is pretty unassuming but he just like comes out looking like like one like an elite defenseman like he's like five nine and he's Uh like 170 pounds and but he just is so good in transition and he never takes any penalties and that's another thing that people just don't really realize is that defensemen who play a lot of minutes 
if they do not take penalties, like that's actually really valuable because when you take a penalty, you're putting your team at a disadvantage from a goal perspective. And so that's something that a lot of people don't really understand. So like Connor McDavid, he draws more penalties than like anybody. Like he's just a God because he's like so fast and every team's just like, they do anything to slow him down. And he draws so many penalties, which is super valuable. And it's the same way with taking penalties. You know, I think that is one of the things that's pretty overlooked and if i'm trying to think of like <laughs> other like kind of i think I, I think probably like a more famous player would be like patrick kane for the blackhawks who's just uh -huh. atrocious defensively well now like, he is he wasn't now he wasn't he didn't used to be but now he's just really bad and they keep putting him out in these just you know late game defensive scenarios and it's just like what are you doing like that's not <laughs> that's not like what he's good at like that's not where you should put him out but yeah so tell me about goalies how hard oh, do they God. make your life <laughs> what's the difference between them in terms of magnitude how long does it take to tell what their true talent is is it like uh, yeah, catchers in the sense that, it, that they're so different from every I, other position and <laughs> i would say they're they're not it, it's it's harder than i would say goalies cause so much pain and headaches and issues because <laughs> They yes, they require a lot of time and a lot they, they a lot of shots against to to kind of start to determine. I would say right at any given time in the league. So every team generally they they can have they all have one starting goalie and then they have a backup goalie and that's who there is on their roster. And at any given point in the league, you have basically yeah, what is it like sixty goalies? Yeah, with two more teams. Yeah, goalie, and, yes, yeah, and, and then you have a couple. You know, you'll have some funny s scenarios where you have emergency goalies, or whatever. But and those goalies they don't play every game. They play maybe 60 games out of the 80 you know the 82 season or whatever and so you need a lot of seasons and year over year you just see goalies go from the best goalie in the league to and two years later they're just terrible you know and then the next year they're great and it's just, just so much variability there and the other thing too is that we um we don't have a lot of so there are certain aspects about looking at how a goalie moves like we don't we, we don't currently track like goalie positioning you know where where or where their glove is or where's their stick or how's their movement side to side those kind of things are more granular and we don't have that so it can be very hard to look at those things um, I would say that one of the biggest things that a lot of the more advanced stuff that has come out is just to try to remove to get the goalie out of analysis because there's a lot of noise it's almost entirely noise when it comes to goals against for a skater when a skater's on the ice you like goals against when that skater's on the ice is just basically there's no there's just nothing there because it's so random when you look at the entire population and there's just a lot of things that you have to do i think xg or expected goals is a pretty good job of of kind of removing the goalie and looking at how players or skaters do defensively because we can evaluate how a player like or is this player giving up a, a ton of high quality chances just looking at using that model are they really good at suppressing those kind of chances so and then yeah and then tagging in with that it's like with goalies you can take an expected goal model and say how many goals did they allow versus their total expected goals you know faced that's mm -hmm. a pretty common thing right now but i mean to be honest i've heard some theories because it's really actually really hard to show that goal goalie skill is like repeatable it just looks like noise like if you look at the goalie stats and you try to do like repeatability type measures that just looks like noise and i've heard people kind of like theorize that goalies their prime is too short or basically for how much how much of a sample you need 
for the population to get a good measurement of it. That like most goalies don't play in the league long enough, which uh-huh. would be like you need f- basically five full seasons for like every goalie, and that just doesn't happen. There's like there's like at any given time you can be sure that there's probably two goalies who are legitimately good, and there are probably two or three goalies who are legitimately bad, and then there's everyone else that we don't really know about. Yeah, that's uh-huh. kind that's of goalies. basically goalie analysis. And yeah, there's a thing they say in the hockey world that goalies are voodoo. And it's like a th- and it's it's essentially true. Yeah. It's just really really difficult. <laughs> that's interesting if you could discern their true talent would you guess that it there would be a widespread or not really because if there were then you'd think that the goalies would be super important I, they are the ones who wet the goals in or not but yeah. is it just sort of the replacement level is really high presumably well, or? it's really funny you bring up the idea of like kind of replacement level in because we have a war model uh that we built as well and, mm-hmm. and we also have one that for goalies and it's kind of interesting because we actually had when i was kind of curious if we were going to get any baseball people looking at it because war models have and we haven't talked about this yet but there have been several war models that have existed but a lot of those people who made them now work or were hired for teams so they're not available ours is still available but we got into it with um tango or tom tango about this because he was just adamant that we were giving too much value to goalies our model uh-huh. said that goalies were worth too much he was like they they don't get paid for the amount of value you're giving them here and there were some other things and it was legitimate criticism we went and looked at it and talked to a lot of our I don't know, peers or the people that we kind of interact with. And it's still kind of up for debate. I think that in terms of just looking at like the value they add, I think that a lot of it is is team or system dependent. So it can be kind of hard, even with some kind of expected goal model, it still can be hard if, for instance, a coach deploys a certain type of system and, you know, that that they, they I don't know, say they dump the puck a lot or something even, or or maybe they they allow points from the, or a lot of shots from the point because that's a good, that those are lower, uh, lower probability shots. But the goalie, maybe the team is bad at getting on the way or there's a lot of deflections. There's a lot of stuff that can get in the way of just that. But I would guess that the spread of talent for goalies isn't, isn't that wide. Like I, I would guess there's a couple players on either end but it is funny because when we've looked at replacement level kind of looking at multiple methods like it looks like replacement level goalies are terrible so mm-hmm. it's it's a interesting kind of it gets hard to show like skill from a season to season or multiple season through multiple season span but there is a clear replacement level so it's kind of like i think that it's, it's kind of a mixed bag there like it's hard to really say anything it honestly is hard to say anything about goaltending yeah. at all i think <laughs> <laughs> well, I pity you. That, that <laughs> yes. Well, we're we're lucky because we can just say sorry. We don't do goalie stuff. We get we give you some stats you can look at. But yeah, you can other look people. at them. But like just yeah. just don't. Yeah, we've done some advanced stuff with that, and I'm not gonna like put my stamp on that. And I can use it. Well, the we thing won't is, put here, our here, stamp on it. But yeah, it's no, just, we will. Yeah. Here's the thing. I'll say. All you need to say is like Hendrick Hendrick Lundqvist is the best goalie, and he's been the best goalie for tw- ten years. Yeah, it's just Hendrick Lundqvist and is John the best. Gibson right now. In that those two, and just you're fine with those. And yeah, that's, uh-huh. just go with those two, and you'll be fine. That's interesting because obviously, you know, just visually, there's a parallel with catchers in baseball, and they are very distinct from all the other positions. And catchers were kind of like that for a long time, in that it was really hard to quantify a lot of the things that they did, and recently that's become much easier to do or much more feasible and so now we know oh this is how good this catcher is and how good that catcher is at least some aspects of their performance and it turns out there is a huge difference between them and so I I wonder whether that will ever be the case for for goalies or obviously it's just a different job description and I guess unless you had I don't know very precise 
body positioning or stick positioning or something like that it, it would just be hard to to break it down in the same way but i will ask you about tracking stats in a, in a moment so maybe we'll get to that but you alluded to hockey analysts getting hired and i know there was sort of a, a watershed time for that 2014 the the summer of analytics we had sean McIndoo on this podcast at the time to talk about that so what caused that run on hockey analysts at that time and and what have the ramifications been for the public hockey analysis community because obviously this has happened in baseball too tons and tons of smart people have gotten hired by teams but we've been kind of lucky in the sense that we haven't lost baseball reference we haven't lost fan graphs like the the stats repositories are still out there but from what i understand a lot of that data at least in publicly accessible form kind of went away for a while yeah, that's absolutely true. I think the some of the first websites definitely there were a couple um like Extra Skater was one the Daryl Metcalf is that yeah, yeah there's a lot of names I'm gonna, uh, Daryl Metcalf did a website and that he got hired by the Maple Leafs and that went down and mm-hmm. then the War on Ice was one so that was the original first real war model was on a website called War on Ice and that was run by three people Andrew Thomas Sam Ventura and Alexander Alexander Madricki and all three of those individuals got hired by teams and then their website went down they did leave it on github but it's um it, nobody really took up that task to remake it and then there were a couple like behind the net gabriel dardane i think did yeah. and then he did he didn't really get hired but I, I think maybe he did i can't remember there's a lot but yeah, yeah it's just been a it's been a bummer because a lot of the time people who run the sites it's just one person or a small team of people who do it it's not like it's um kind of maintained by i'm not exactly sure how fangraphs was able to stay up or i I don't know the history about it but it's david appleman who just uh kind of started it himself and didn't really want to work in baseball or or did initially but after that was just more interested in in building his business and creating his own thing which i think has been fortunate for all yeah. of us so well and that's that's the thing that's been super fortunate i think in that and it's it's just that there are a lot of people got into it and I, I don't want to presume i know where a lot of people did i think early on there were people who just did it as a hobby and then basically teams started to see that this kind of work could lead to results and so they just same thing in baseball they just kind of they targeted certain blog at the time it was a lot of bloggers and people who wrote mm-hmm. for their own site or some of the SB Nation stuff back then and a lot of those happened to run websites so there's kind of this funny joke where a website would go up and everyone was like this is great I love it here's great there's great data there's great charts and then but there was always this constant tension of eventually this site is going to go down and yeah. that happened over and over and over again for various reasons and it's it's been i mean it, it, right now there's there's essentially 3 or 4 that there are there are really two sites that provide really comprehensive data for skaters for skaters and a little and goalies and it's it's our so our site evolving hockey i'm not trying to you know i'm not i'm not trying to self promote here but it's kind of our site and then na- there's a site called natural stat trick that's fantastic it's been around for a long for uh well a long time in hockey stats it's like four years i think mm-hmm. there's also uh and that's run by brand timmins i think timmins yeah, yeah yeah timmins who's uh it's a really great site and then micah blake mccurdy is probably one of the bigger names um and he he has a site called hockeyviz.com but it's mostly visualization and charts and his, he, you can't really go there and download tables or csvs to do d- stuff with data yourself mm-hmm. and so it, it, it's and then there's just like money puck would be another yeah, but money they're puck. mostly focused on like kind of more the betting side but they don't have like a betting model just like probably 
probabilities of in-game and... in-game win probability yeah. type stuff and stuff and like it, that. It's, so... I mean, I don't want to speak for everyone else, but it seems like right now it's pretty stable. There was CourseGood.Hockey that was run by Manuel Perry or Manny Perry, and, and it was really, really great, but he ultimately took that down. And so, yeah, it's it's kind of this, uh, I don't know if it's just maybe there, there are maybe less fans. There are also, uh, it doesn't seem like there's the people who uh, have the technical knowledge. I mean, for us, I mean, it's kind of almost a moder- like it's a miracle that we even have a website because we, we weren't, I mean, like I said, we were music majors. I mean, we just kind of came into this. We taught our, ourselves the programming language R, and then luckily we could kind of do a, a, a website with that. But um, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of work. So has there been much adoption by players and, and by coaches? Is this still mostly a front office thing in hockey or is it really penetrating down at the ice where you, you have players talking about these things and embracing these ideas? Uh, I think it's mostly in like a front office type. If that, I mean, I think there's probably about half the teams have like a legitimate analytics, if you will, department, Um, you know, beyond if that would maybe just more than one person, that would be yeah, maybe it, maybe about half the teams have more than one person. It's an important asterisk to say that there are still teams right now that do not employ anyone who looks at anything data related. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there's a couple teams that just are like, whatever, we don't care. So that's kind of where the state of the sport yeah, is. Yeah, but then and there's maybe like five or six that like the Maple Leafs have a really big team. Hurricanes, the Colorado Avalanche. Um, You know, I think the New Jersey Devils just hired a couple people this summer. Um, The Minnesota Wild did. And then they had a... GM fiasco and he just basically pissed everybody off and they all left uh but anyway in terms of getting down to the player level I I think from a public facing side we just don't really have the data to make something that I guess you'd say is actionable it's kind of unfortunate like we have like I think uh, Josh mentioned earlier that I think we're pretty confident with like being able to assess player talent or skill like from the methods we have but that's we can't really determine why I think that that would basically you know, if a player was wondering, I think there's some like kind of general concepts about like how, you know, like basically just knowing that that shots closer to the net are have a higher probability of becoming a goal. Um, I think there's some work with like manual tracking and that would be like uh, mm-hmm. Corey Snyder, who's kind of done the uh, and, and then he, he tracks a lot of games manually and that'll give like zone entries as a thing, a zone entry defense. So like how well does a player defend against zone entries because that's kind of been shown to be a thing that's um you know if a player is good at entering the zone with possession that would be a thing that's good stuff like that so i think there's some concepts like that and then like ryan stimson had worked worked on the passing project basically showing that um where are the most dangerous passes coming from and that was also a manual tracking type thing but a lot of that stuff is kind of hard to apply at you know it's 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 very different than in baseball where you can have a pitcher who can look at you know like the heat map for each mm-hmm. one of their opponents that they're facing like the batters and then you know knowing each batter's spray chart so you can then shift and and you know stuff like that is just, we just don't have the data at a granular level like that right now so it's really pretty hard in general to apply very specific things to at an individual skater or goalie level so have there been changes yet in terms of play style and aesthetics of the sport i mean have these ideas become pervasive enough that they've actually changed how players play in a way that has either improved the sport or hurt it from a spectator perspective i would say that that the there there probably have been a few things and i i but i it's kind of hard to separate that out and say that that was the direct result of the decisions made based on numbers right or or data Mm -hmm. a lot of it is just that teams have realized that 
you know, the, they've looked at like they've realized, you know, the best players are at their peak earlier than we thought. And so they're starting to um, bring players up who are younger. And what's what, you know, you, you see what used to be thought, I think, and I'm not sure on the recent work on this, but in baseball, what's the kind of the peak is maybe what, like 28, 29? Does that seem right? Yeah, it, it was sort of that 26 to 29 okay. range. Yeah. It, now it seems to be getting younger also yeah. in baseball. And yeah. so hockey, they I, I think you look at a lot of aging curve work and, and we did some early on when we were looking at this and you kind of see the player peak is maybe between 22 to 25. Like huh. after that is kind or of maybe even like 21. Yeah, maybe 21. And so what teams have kind of done is they've they've started to remove. And this is also we haven't even talked about this yet. But fighting is going is, is dropping, which is a, right. you know, its own thing. But you don't see nearly as many fights as you used to do. And teams used to just play a guy who would fight. That was their own like <laughs> for the most part. And they weren't very good overall. But every team had an enforcer, it was called. And they're just enforcers are kind of just a dying breed. They don't really exist. So teams have just gotten faster. They've gotten generally younger. like smaller. So yeah. smaller players and more skill oriented players. But that might be more of a um, kind of just younger type of style of game where since fighting is down and it's not like, you know, you're not looking at the 1970s and 80s where it's, you'd have, you know, the, oh, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out type, yeah. <laughs> you know, that type of mentality is just gone because it's just yeah. not really promoted in the lower leagues. But and it, so, I guess in terms of, I'm trying to think of like, if there, if there've been like, 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 I would general say, I, I think like dumping the puck yeah. as a, as a, but I, there, think I mean, that's there's a, still teams that do that though. That, and then, so, so if, for people who don't know, dumping the puck is basically a, style of play where once you reach the center line so if you're coming from your defensive zone skating you have to reach center ice and then you can throw the puck down to the other side behind the goalie and that's and and basically the the idea was that you would throw the puck back in deep and then you would just skate in really hard and hit the other players and try to get the puck back or just beat mm -hmm. them if um, you're faster and so that's called generally the system is dump and chase and that was kind of like I guess criticized in an early and it still kind of is although it can be successful if you have the right players for it but a lot of the time it's just better to have players who are good or good at entering the zone with possession rather than it's kind of like you're giving up it's kind of like I guess in uh, comparable comparison would be like in football where you in, when you punt you know I guess that's that's not really but it kind of is because you're just giving it away and then you're just like assuming you're gonna get it back later but I think like that and then another thing that's kind of been a big thing is like pulling the goalie so there's been a lot of research mm -hmm. or a decent number of research about showing that if you're down by one goal you should actually be pulling the like at the end of the game if a team is down, just for people, if people don't know, the goalie can just be substituted for a skater at any point in any hockey game. It's just because they're considered another skater. And so it's not can, its not the end of the game either. You can just do it whenever you want. Yeah, teams you could don't do it. You could do it if, say, you have a five-on-three power play. You could just pull your goalie and put a sixth skater out there if you wanted to. That's a pretty, pretty bold move, and but it potentially could pay off. I'm not really sure, but it, basically there was some research and some basically showing that if you're down by one goal – with you should really be pulling the goalie with like six minutes left instead of two or one and a half minutes. And if you're down by two goals, it was something like nine minutes just because like the probability of losing the game is like you're already losing. So you're really not 
gaining anything by just waiting. Like you really should just, so that's kind of like a big thing that's been kind of now people are just like yelling at coaches to yeah, pull the goalie earlier. There but. aren't a lot of teams that are, that have adopted. There was Patrick Waugh who coached the avalanche for a couple of years and uh, he would pull the goalie with like, like yeah. 11 minutes left in the third. It almost and was like this thing where coaches were just like almost like offended by it or something, you know, cause it was so <laughs> early and so it went against so many things. And but so he, one of the, the most acclaimed goalies was yeah. one of the most yep. aggressive <laughs> at pulling the goalie. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Which I, I mean, there's, you know, there's a connection there. He but, ended up being a pretty not, yeah, potentially not good coach, but that was one thing. <laughs> uh-huh so last i read there were plans for a, a puck and player tracking system to debut in the next playoffs right so is that mm-hmm. happening still and how do you expect that to change things either internally or externally if any of that data will actually be public yeah so player tracking it's a thing we've been hearing about it for a while now and it's mm-hmm. uh for those who don't know it's if maybe some are familiar with the nba's um player tracking system it's a video system that the nhl has been working on to do like it's i mean a num like ton of captures per second that are in they've been working on it for a while and the last thing that people had heard was um the playoffs this season as you as you said the league as is maybe been a somewhat theme isn't always the most forthright with information about these things and <laughs> we haven't heard a lot about it there it's kind of interesting because and and maybe this is something I can talk about later but there's been kind of this it's been rumored for a year or two that we're going to be getting it and there was this kind of thought that maybe the public would maybe have access to some of or all of the data like but really i think what we're probably no. gonna they, get did they really well i don't no, think I, that I, was I, ever I, a thing. yeah I, th- I think really what kind of happened is fans were just they wanted it like they thought it would be <laughs> oh fans great. wanted so it, I, it's probably not unlike what Statcast kind of how that was rolled mm-hmm. out um yep. and ultimately what happened is with Statcast is like it's not really available to the public outside mm-hmm. of a few sources and i think that's probably what's going to happen from a public facing standpoint with this is that the league may make it available to maybe some someone or a couple of journalists or whoever and they'll maybe have some third parties who do some stuff with it but not to mention the da- i mean it's very large it, it like we for instance probably i mean we it would I mean, we don't have big enough computer or server or whatever to work with. Yeah, I, don't, I, I would I would mm-hmm. guess that if, if the public had access to a full season of raw player tracking data in the NHL, they would not be able to afford to work with it. Yeah, and that's, um, that's kind of like the scope that we're looking at. But it does, I think, like, I do think the league, I think from kind of what the rumors are and what's been reported is like their real incentive is they want to help broadcast. So they want to have, you know, a name uh, floating around on a skater or look at how fast is a, is a, is a skater skating. Kind of or, similar to the NFL yeah. with um, showing passing yeah, or, or like uh, running like receiver routes and, and stuff like that. Like, I think that's kind of more of what the idea is with it. And so, yeah, that's pretty much like where it's at right now. I think a lot of fans are like, oh, well, once we get player tracking data, we'll be able to know this. It's like. You know, I'm I'm just gonna say right now, like, sorry, anybody who thinks you're getting that, but you're not gonna get that. And also, like anyone who thinks that we can, like, even in basketball, they're still they're still trying to figure out the best ways to use it. Is my understanding, and it, I think there's there's kind of this overhanging cloud over hockey. The state of the current like 2019 2020 season is there's a lot of work that that could probably be done, but I think there are some people who are just waiting to see what happens with player tracking because. There has been, I, and we don't need to get in this too much, but a lot of the pushback against some of like the war models have been the data isn't good enough and we need to wait for player tracking before we can uh-huh. actually figure out how to do this. And so that is kind of, we've, as model creators, have had a lot of pushback of people saying we need to, we need player tracking and, and we're somewhat skeptical. 
And I think the last thing I wanted to ask you is that you were the first or among the first to notice that the NHL shot location data this season was off, that it was misreporting where shots were actually taken, which was screwing up a lot of stats. And I know that the league said that it would look into that in response to those public reports. So what happened there and has that been straightened out? Yeah, actually, that was a, that was a really bizarre thing. It was um, a doozy. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, they did fix it, actually. So we essentially what happened was we I was just looking at early season results with our expected goals model and like the diff generally with an expected goals model like I know there's some weird things with probabilities that potentially are maybe going against like traditional like probability theory but if you just add up every expected goal taken in the league it should sum to about goal to every like the actual goal total in the league mm -hmm. and so because we built a new expected goals model this summer I when well, I, we both we, we both in did. our own no, ways let me yeah jo Josh <laughs> built the model actually I do most of the data side stuff and he does a lot of the more of the modeling but anyway so <laughs> I was just to like make sure that nothing was wrong I was just like a couple you know maybe three weeks in the season I was looking at xg totals on our site and then across on natural stat trick and money puck and like xg was way below actual goal scoring like i mean like really really low like i think the goal totals at the time were like there were 160 goals and our xg models were at 100 xg which uh -huh. is just not like i was like what is going on because i was like i thought we were doing something wrong then i went and looked at the other sites and they were basically in line with what our xg model said and so then we went and started looking at the actual shot locations because and, yeah well you can, well I was gonna just I, and then it was kind of a team it was a, like a teamwork because we were just you know we had done a lot of work this off season we did some new models and we were evaluating a few of them early on and and I was I we do this thread on our um our evolving hockey Twitter account that we look at we take our respective goals model and we look at you know the highest XG what we'd call them shots so the highest probability shots that occurred in the prior week or something like that and I was just noticing when I found those that not only were the values lower than what we maybe thought they should be the distances were all off I, they they the NHL is somewhat they're they're generally pretty good with their distances but these were you know four or five six feet away from the net and so mm -hmm. then we both kind of did a little bit it was a Sunday night on there I won't forget this is that we did a lot of just like went through a couple different ways of looking at how where the shots were coming from where they were being tracked the maybe the distance from the net and we realized basically that all of the shots that were generally right in front of the net or around the net had kind of just all been pushed away from the net and what with, with an expected goals model generally the, the distance is a very significant feature in an expected goals model so the closer the shot is to the net the higher the value Mm -hmm. For the most part, it, distance is really king. And what we notice is that compared to at this point in the last three seasons, the distances were being tracked further away and the values were lower because of that. And so we did a thread on Twitter. It kind of blew up a little bit. It got somewhat picked up. Uh, we had several sources uh, and, and it, like team and league sources kind of reach out and say they had been somewhat looking in that. And then it was kind of confirmed by a, a, a few journalists, Greg Wyshynski and Elliot Friedman, both picked it up and then kind of were able to confirm the league that it was a problem they identified. And then it took them what, maybe I think it took them three weeks to go fix it. Well, they, 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 well, they, they put in an immediate fix because it was something with, I, from what I heard, I think it was reported it was a problem with their user interface with the trackers. So uh -huh. the, I think something about maybe the, I, I don't know, they, well, I think it was they had the, switched it, over. What and, it was was the, the, they, they, the way the trackers work is they have a rank and they just can click and point at where the events occur and that's just automatically uh, will plot a coordinate on a XY grid. And my understanding was the, the, the rink layout they had was not 
translating correctly to the actual coordinates around the net. And so it was just essentially the, the net was too big is what ended up I coming see. out. Yeah. And so so they, long story they, here. They but, put in a they put in a fix like basically within a week, and then they backlogged or they they updated all of the coordinates from that was the first 91 games of the year and they went back and they fixed all of them so you know props to the nhl because they actually went back and like you know from what i i mean it seems like it was a whole bunch of work to get those fixed so that was a it was a pretty uh you know nice reminder that they're the league is you know they have a you know concern for the data integrity because you know it's it's good data and it's free and it's you know very nice the league provides it All right. Well, I was just reading an article from the Seattle Times from August that was headlined, All Eyes on How GM Ron Francis Will Build Out the Analytics Department of Seattle's NHL Team, which is going to be starting in 2021. And it says in the article, among bloggers not already with teams, Seattle fans might keep an eye on twins Luke and Josh Youngren from Evolving Wild in Minnesota. (laughs) They have as good a grasp on analytics as any bloggers. So I guess enjoy Luke and Josh while you can and yeah. <laughs> uh, evolving wild while it's still out there. So uh, maybe maybe like one of you can work for a team at a time so that the other one can keep the site going and then you can just rotate or something just for the the good of the hockey analysis community. Yeah, well, but <laughs> yeah, I well well thank you. We we are currently enjoying our current status and we we really we enjoy very much enjoy our work in the public yeah. right now. Yeah. So but well I guess we'll just I guess, never say never. Never I guess but, never say never but we really enjoy working uh in the public and you know we have this whole website that we've spent years making so (laughs) it's uh it's a tough uh pull yeah i guess it's 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 hard to get away from that i would say well you can find josh and luke at evolving wild on twitter you can also find their site at evolving hockey and at evolving hyphen hockey.com they are also patreon people so you can find them at patreon.com slash evolving hockey if you want to support their work and appreciate your coming on this has been fun yeah thanks so much thanks so much man for having us it's been a great time yeah pleasure okay let's pause for a quick break and we'll be right back to talk cricket with jared kimber All right, I am joined now by Jared Kimber, who is a cricket jack-of-all-trades. He has done it all in the cricket world. He describes himself as sort of cricket's John Hollinger, but he has been a writer and an analyst and a commentator. He's written for ESPN's cricket site. He has served as an analyst for cricket teams, and he's probably done many other things, which maybe we will cover at some point in this interview. Jared, welcome. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to say a very unsuccessful version of the Hollinger, but um, <laughs> but yeah, essentially a, a similar sort of thing. Except, my, I suppose I did most of mine in reverse. But uh, uh, yeah, I've uh, we've uh, basically I have uh, taken every job in cricket that will pay me because uh, I uh, like to pay my mortgage. Yeah, that's a good strategy. All right, so just a general big picture question: If we were to rank cricket on a scale of ease of analysis you know if you if you said that baseball is a 10 it's the the sport that lends itself maybe most readily to statistical analysis just because of the structure of the sport and the record keeping and all of that if baseball is a 10 what would cricket be just in terms of how the game itself flows and is organized well it's it's obviously a very similar sport to baseball in in a sort of basic level 
um, and a, you know it, it's a bit more complicated with the scoring system, which actually helps it more than than baseball for for analysis. But um, being that uh, for hundreds of years, uh, no one ever actually uh, took information at all, um, <laughs> really didn't do anything with all that information. And cricket has one big problem that baseball doesn't have, which is that the pitch changes all the time. Mm. Um, and even the ball, um, we use the same ball uh, for long periods of time. So the ball, the ball deteriorates during a game, and the pitch is a is, is a turf pitch, so it's made of grass, which means uh-huh. over five days, you know, in a long form game, you can have an incredible change of um, of the way that the game is played. And you can imagine that the grass in Pakistan is not that similar to the uh, you know the grass in Cape Town, mm. um, for instance. So on many levels, it's quite easy to quantify a lot of this stuff. But it doesn't always translate to being a predictive measure. Um, we, you know, uh, we, we can say which sort of players are good in certain um, situations, but we can't necessarily, when we go to the next ground, we can't tell you that that pitch is going to behave the way that we think it's going to behave because it's a living, breathing organism. Well, a lot of living, breathing <laughs> organisms, in fact, um, all, you know, rolled together. And even yeah. over a three-hour period, things can change. So I'd probably put it, if, if baseball's a 10, I probably put it somewhere around 5.5, um, uh-huh. 6. There's a lot of one thing that is a lot of sort of a bit like baseball, you know, that you know, you have the bowler bowling to the batsman. You know, it's not like basketball or like football where you have to, you know, use um, you know, computer tracking to work those sorts of things out. We know that a bowler right. has to bowl that ball to that batsman, a bit like a pitcher has to throw to a batter. So, so in some ways we know a lot, but it's just all the variables of which we'll get to throughout the podcast, which make it a little bit more difficult. Yeah, so that that sounds uh, that's like taking baseball park factors to a a much more extreme and complicated level, which is already a level that many sports don't have because they have a fairly standardized playing surface or at least the same dimensions and that sort of thing. And that's kind of an extra wrinkle to baseball, but cricket, it just takes it to another higher level that makes it even more difficult to analyze, I guess. Yeah, and we also have different ground sizes. So right. we have we have the, the normal baseball problem, and on top of that, we have that the the actual surface that the game is played on. Um, uh-huh. So uh, <laughs> and, and little things that you probably don't, I, you know, I haven't I haven't looked into all the uh, stuff in baseball, but there's obviously dew factor in certain parts of the cricket world as well. Um, mm-hmm. So <laughs> you actually the ball literally deteriorated at a completely different rate in different grounds, and different kinds of bowlers can't bowl if the dew comes in late at night for. Um, day-night games or sometimes in the morning for, for day games. So there's a lot of very interesting external factors that do ruin my life. <laughs> so give me a, a brief history of cricket analysis, whatever you would call modern sabermetric analysis as it exists in cricket. When did that start? How did it kind of catch on? And maybe what are some of the major breakthroughs or, or places or times when it was implemented? Yeah, I suppose it's, um, you know, cricket basically invented batting average, so it went across the baseball, but it's been uh-huh. a cricket staple, I think, since the late 1700s. After top, okay. I'm a cr- cricket historian, I should know this, but I think very early on, they worked out that, you know, if you worked out how many times you batted and you divided by how many times you, sorry, if you, how many runs you made by how many mm-hmm. times you were dismissed, we could work out the, the, the basic level of a batsman and a bowler. And so that was very early on. And what's incredible about cricket is even more than baseball, it just went, no, we're good. We've worked out this one metric. And, and to be fair, unlike RBIs and, and, and some of the, the numbers in, in baseball, 
Cricket batting average is actually not a bad stat over 20 test matches, say, or uh-huh. first-class matches, which are the longer games that go for three, four, and five days. It's actually a pretty good metric. It's not perfect, because as I said, you might have played 10 of those in India and 10 of those in Australia on completely different pitches against completely different teams, but it gives you a bit of an idea. And so cricket just went, yeah, yeah we don't need to worry about any of this. <laughs> and then we got to about... I would say about 1970. So we're talking 180 years later uh-huh. and crickets changed the formats. So we then had started having limited overs games. So in a test match, there's no, you can bowl as many overs as you want, essentially. It's five days of cricket. Whereas they wanted a game that was a bit better for TV. So they wanted a one day game, which was anywhere between 50 and 60 overs per side. And then when you finish those overs, the team swap are switched over. And so about that time, we realized that Cricket changed, uh, you know, th- those limited uh, format games were, were quite different than the original game in that efficiency was important for the first time. Instead of taking the big step forward and actually working out what that meant, what cricket came up with was a scoring rate system. So uh, if you were to, if you're a bowler and you went for four runs and over, your economy would be four. And if you're a batsman and you struck at a, a strike rate of 70 runs per 100 balls, your strike rate would be 70. Mm-hmm. And again, it was, these are not bad metrics. But um, nothing was added to them. Uh, no one really took them that much further forward. And then throughout the 90s, so there's a big change, especially in Australian sport. Um, so you might have seen this. I think the baseball teams have started using them, but a lot of American teams have. There's these things called the catapult system. Yes, the wearable technology that tracks player movement and exertion and strain. Yeah. So that was inv- it's incredible. I, one day I'll write one of the most boring long-form pieces um, in the history of sports on on catapult system because the catapult system came out of an Australian government academy system so you know usually you think of these things in sports as being money driven but this was literally driven by patriotism and trying to make Australian athletes better and that was a big change in Australian sports so if you look at the Australia in the 1980s they were dreadful at the Olympics and I can say this because I'm an Australian so it's okay <laughs> I lived in the UK for a, a long time but I'm still Australian enough that I can say we were we were pathetic in the in the 70s and 80s at sport and when you're I come from a country that basically has Paul Hogan and nothing else. You know, the odd good um, B house, uh, you know, a B grade movie. You know, we needed we needed to be good at sports again, and we had been really good at sport. Obviously, you know, Rod Laver and the golfers, and uh, you know, we and we've been quite good in the Olympics. So Australia changed um, and came up with this academy, and catapult came through that. But also, cricket got a lot more professional in Australia only. It's really interesting that the other countries didn't cotton on what was happening. And Australia went on to dominate the game. And that's basically when the first major analytics movement came through. Uh And in perfect cricket style, it happened in a hotel in India, I think. I'm trying to think if it was Kolkata or Mumbai. But basically, the Australian cricket coach was staying in this hotel. And this uh, lovely man called Krishna Tunga, who's, I I love him to death, but he's a mental guy, just completely out there uh, uh, sort of person. I think he's been a fashion model, a cricket statistician and there's some other random job like he sold mobile phones or something he's just one of those guys (laughs) who gets really fascinated with things and goes off and Uh does stuff and so he he watched every game of cricket around the world because in india they're so obsessed with it that the games are broadcast back back to um 
back to India. Whereas most countries, if you grew up in Australia like I did, you almost you never saw India play New Zealand or Sri Lanka play England. You only saw Australia play whoever they were playing. Mm. And then this was before. This is the whole cable TV boom as well. When that sort of comes up, so you know America is a lot earlier than the rest of the world. For the rest of the world, cable TV really becomes a huge thing in the nineties. And so cricket becomes this thing. This guy in India has all these cable TV channels. He gets every game and he literally sits at home and he watches them on VHS and he marks out, well, that ball has pitched there on the pitch and that person played this kind of shot to that and he got this amount of runs. Um, And he does that for like thousands of cricket games just over and over and over again and there's no automation of his system i've seen his system it's incredibly amateur Mm -hmm. like he didn't even do it on an excel spreadsheet i think he did it on word which i I mean anyone who's ever used word for more than eight minutes is probably having a panic attack at thinking of having to do (laughs) thousands of cricket analysis on word and so so this guy takes all this information and he goes to this coach and, and, and the coach's name was john buchanan and he was sort of a outlier coach, uh, very much most cricket coaches at that point. And cricket coaches were quite a new thing before that. Cricket coach was it was almost like a um, ceremonial job because mm. you know, in cricket the captain uh, is an incredibly important thing. So obviously, in most sports in the world, the captain is it's a it's a figurative. You know, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter who the captain is. In football, they just give a different armband to someone. Mm-hmm. In cricket, the captain it, it's almost like a combination of what a head coach and a quarterback do. I see. And so you are on the ground. So let's say you're on the ground for two hours during a session of a test match. There's no way for the coach to be bringing messages out because play is going on and and cricket actually eventually banned the coaches sending out too many messages, although there's many ways around that. But the coaching staff can't go out on the ground or anything for those two hours. So the captain makes all the decisions when it comes to the strategy of where to put the fielders, of who to bowl, of of, of where they should bowl and all these sorts of things. And so because of that job, Coaching was sort of a coach was someone who, if if there was something going on, you know, in a training session, they w- would have a say. But mostly, the captains ran the game. And then w- through the professional cricket Australia change, you suddenly had this huge boom of of coaches getting really important. But they were mostly, as you would expect, ex players, usually mm-hmm. good players, you know, former stars. There was a few sort of what I'd call educational coaches as well, the sort of coaches you would see at college level in American sports. But a lot of coaches were, you know, just former players who who still didn't have that much to do with it but John Buchanan was completely outside the box he ended up running New Zealand cricket and getting people from lawn bowls involved in their management structure and he would give all the Australian cricketers and I don't like if you want to like google an image of an Australian cricketer you probably get like a big burly guy with a mustache (laughs) who's smoking and drinking at the same time and like John Buchanan gave them all the art of war by Sun Tzu Uh he wrote these incredible like dossiers on the opposition players and then pretended to accidentally leave them around in the hotel so the opposition players would find them (laughs) you know he was he had this sort of very left brain wave of thinking about things and so he's in this random indian hotel with an australian tour and this crazy guy who i said was a fashion model and everything else um comes up to him and says i think what you're doing in cricket is great but i think it could be taken forward with this analysis and john buchanan looks at this stuff in front of him and he's smart enough to go We've never had anything like this before. This guy, this guy can tell me how many balls of different lengths have been bowled. And this mm-hmm. is, I think it was 2001. 
Okay. So we're talking about by this stage, baseball is a long way ahead, although a lot right. of other sports, obviously not so much, uh, but Moneyball is already existing, even if the book hasn't come out and titled it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas cricket hasn't got anything. It literally has a madman going up to a, a random coach and they formed this bond. And so for the next few years, he did it. But the, the, the great thing about this is Cricket Australia was at that stage, probably second or third richest cricket nation on earth. And, and cricket is basically an international sport. So you know, it's the international teams that run it up until very recently. And yet they didn't pay this guy, Krishna Tonga. And yet he kept giving them incredible analysis of <laughs> lines and lengths uh, to bowl, different pitches. As I said, you know, you, you need to bowl a completely different length in England than you do, do in somewhere like India. And, and mm-hmm. when I talk about length, I'm talking about where the ball bounces. So, you know, he's giving them all this information that no one had ever had before. And Cricket Australia still didn't pay him. Um, but he was so excited to be used that he kept doing that. And then through that, through that, uh, you would have thought there'd be a big boom because people started to talk about Australia using different strategies. So one of the interesting things is, you know, you know pitches don't really do anything other than pitch. Whereas a fast bowler in cricket uh, has to run in for 30 meters before he, he bowls fast. Um, uh-huh. And then he has to field in the outfield when he's not bowling. And so one thing that Krishna worked out was that uh, some of these bowlers must be doing, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 kilometers a day. Mm-hmm. In the outfit of walk, a lot of it's walking, but a lot of it's running as well. And he was just like, if you, if that person needs to be the person who has the most energy, why are they doing the most work in the field? Which makes perfect sense. It turned out later on that when, when uh, the Australian team tried to put the fast bowlers in positions where they were not having to run around as much, they tend to be reflex positions, and uh, those players weren't very good at catching the ball, so they got moved uh-huh. anyway. <laughs> but, but the general thoughts, you know what I mean? It, it should have moved cricket forward a long way. But actually, the thing that really changed was when Moneyball came out. The cricketers, there's a lot of cr- crossover interest between uh, cricket and baseball because they are quite similar. Mm-hmm. And also in England, the you know basketball is sort of a non-existent sport. So the NFL and, and Major League Baseball are sort of the 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 American sports that those guys sort of follow. Mm-hmm. And so there was a big crossover. There's been a few guys in cricket try and make it as baseball over time. There's also a lot of... So baseball was a century ahead of cricket when it came to fielding, maybe a century and a half. It's that bad, how, mm-hmm. how bad cricket fielding was compared yeah, to... Yeah, I, I read an article of yours about that, that <laughs> basically just weren't tracking any fielding statistics at all, even like something as basic as errors or just the most sort of, you know, basic things that we've uh, moved past in baseball long ago was just not recorded at all. Nothing, nothing at all. So so a simple thing, we have a thing in, in cricket called an overthrow, where you'll throw the ball back to the wicketkeeper, who's essentially the catcher. And if the ball goes past him... Uh, you can continue to run. Now, obviously, if you're a bowler and you've bowled a ball that the batsman can only hit for one run and then the fielder throws it really poorly past the wicketkeeper or the wicketkeeper lets it go through his legs, it, it, it's, a, it's a very obvious thing that it shouldn't go against the bowling figures, but uh, cricket has never done that. <laughs> so around the, you know, the sort of money ball thing was a bit of a, a mini explosion in cricket. And I do mean mini. It was at the same time the the most recent, or one of the most recent formats of cricket was invented because we keep, we invent a new format of cricket about every five years at this point. <laughs> uh, there's a format of cricket called 2020, uh, mm-hmm. which goes for three hours, which is one of the most successful shortenings of a sport that there has ever been and might keep cricket relevant for the next 50 years. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's had that much of an impact on, on on the sporting countries that have had it and especially on India and that's where the money is because that's where all the people are but there was a kind of money ball came out oh you'll be better at this uh when did the Lewis book come out 2000 2003 okay so uh, t20 cricket starts at the same time 
Uh-huh. And so you sort of have, you have English professional clubs, which is maybe the strongest club league that we'd ever had in cricket up till that point. They've invented this new form of cricket that is essentially to bring drunks to the ground after work, right? <laughs> that's essentially most of it. A little bit of kids and families, but mostly drunks. The idea is it starts at six. So if you're in, you're in an English city like London or Manchester or Birmingham, you finish work at 4.35, you hop to the pub, have a quick couple of beers, then you go down for the match, you watch three hours of cricket. Whereas obviously a test match is seven hours. A one day game goes for about eight hours. So, you know, it's, it was a very clever thing, but it also changed the way we thought about the sport because up, up until that point, bowlers were the attacking ones. Now you had batsmen being the attacking ones. And as we talked about earlier, it, it changed cricket. The, the more you reduce cricket, the more you make it more, almost more like uh, basketball in that it's an efficiency sport at that point. Each team is going to have 120 possessions, if you will, or 120 balls or 120 pitches. We know that coming in. We know each team is going to have that. So it completely changed it. And so Moneyball sort of started to filter into the game at, at this English county level. But you know, it wasn't because there wasn't the the background of it. There wasn't thirty or forty. Well, I was going to say thirty or forty, but you probably in in the sabermetric community, you probably had what three, four, five thousand people throughout the eighties and nineties pouring over all this information, looking for mm-hmm. new stats and new ways of analysing teams. And we didn't have any of that in cricket because the the, the actual ball by ball information, which as I said, we've been using for years to actually generate our score sheets. No one actually collated it all. So what had happened is this this incredible database that cricket should have had from, uh, well, you go back to 1870s is when the first uh, first test matches started. Although the first international sporting event was a USA versus Canada in cricket in the 1850s Mm -hmm. uh, or 1847 or whenever it was. Sorry, fun fact. Um, (laughs) But yeah, so so we'd had all this and, you know, um, scorers in cricket are probably of all the scorers in sport, the most the most honored, the most fated. Because uh-huh. it's a really hard thing. I mean, if, you, if you're listening to this podcast, it's worth Googling a cricket scorebook. It's incredibly complex. It looks like gobbledygook. In fact, I, I, gave, I was working with the Scottish team recently and I gave a scoring card to one of the players and he handed it back to me as if to say, what am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> and so it's a very complicated system. And they, all the, for years, all this information went away and went nowhere. So even when you had the money ball thinking and you know they were looking for you know inefficiencies and they were looking for advantages and all, all the sorts of things that the sort of the Oakland A's and other teams of that time were looking for cricket didn't have the database to go with so you had teams like Sussex who were desperate for this information and Leicester um, who came up with you know some some really interesting um, ideas but they couldn't really back it up as much as as you would want because they didn't have the sort of system behind them mm-hmm. and that's why cricket is, was largely left behind. So there's no reason why cricket, it, because as I said, it's, it's such an enclosed game, batsman versus bowler. If you take out the fielding, and cricket has taken out the fielding, um, sadly, you know, there's heaps that we could have looked at, but we didn't because we didn't have that database. But, so there's a very interesting website who I worked, I worked for this website for years, a website called Crick Info. Mm-hmm. Crick Info started before the World Wide Web. It started on chatting forums in 1993. So basically all these students from India and Australia and South Africa all go to America to study. And then they get to America and they realize that, shit, there's no cricket Uh at all. Like, you know, there's nothing, obviously, as you would know. You know, it's slightly better in America now. 
than it ever has been. But it's you know it hasn't been a cricket nation since since Bart King played in 1903 in England and uh, terrorised the England players. He was a baseball pitcher who also bowled and was brilliant. Um, and sadly, no one remembers him anymore. But he was probably the last time there was a really good American cricketer as well. And so cricket obviously died out there. So all these students are over there and they start using relay chat and um I forget what it was called. It was RSC, the original Google message boards. Well, th- oh, sorry, they- well there's Usenet, which was, yes. uh, yeah, that was kind of the, the baseball, rec sport baseball was where that all germinated. Exactly. So rec sport cricket was also there as well. Uh-huh. Okay. And so these guys through rec sport cricket um, and then through Relay Chat realized that if one of them has access to the radio or TV, they can start doing ball by ball commentary. That started in 1991. By 1993, three, it had, it had formed, uh, they worked out a bot on how to keep the score. So if you came into the chat room, you wouldn't have to say, what's the score? You would just put in a code and the score would come up automatically, uh-huh. which gave them a database of ball by ball, which they weren't obviously thinking about. By 1996, it was one of the biggest websites in the world. Mick Jagger uh, was involved in it. He was, tr- he was trying to stream video in 1996 on Crick Info. Uh, which he did do. It was just terrible. It was one frame every five seconds off the top of my head. But but same again, Mick Jagger's traveling the world trying to get cricket information and he's all these bunch of nerds. So a lot happens and essentially what is a billion dollar company ends up being all the founders who are just cricket nerds. You know, there's a bunch of rocket scientists and uh, uh, there's a professor at Columbia who is, you know, was one of the early guys and they basically invented Twitter you know, the, the automatic scrolling news system. And they used, of course, being cricket nerds, they invented an incredible platform and decided to use it for, you know, uh, getting one-day scores between New Zealand and uh, and Pakistan. So mm-hmm. so they've inv- they've invented this. And then over the years, it eventually ends up in ESPN's hands. And in that sort of period between 1996 and 2007, when ESPN buy it, every ball in cricket is published essentially every major ball in cricket is published on this website and what starts to happen is people start thinking to themselves wait a minute if this company has all this information back to i think 2001 is maybe when it got professional enough that you could scrape data off it mm-hmm. but back to 2001 you can scrape all this data they could start to work that out so people would use, just use a spider to basically just go through and collate all this information into into databases and that's the sort of the, the birth of that is around maybe two thousand and maybe two thousand eight, two thousand nine. People start doing it, but cricket's such a weird community. So, so one of my friends is a massive baseball fan, and he talks about you know Moneyball all the time, and he's also maybe one of the most famous cricket statisticians in the world. And he collates his own database of cricket, which I you know, uh, which you can which you can purchase off him with all this information, all this ball by ball information. So information on literally every delivery in, in the world. And I said to him one time didn't you ever think of using that to analyze the game? And he just sort of looked at me like he hadn't thought of it. And so I think you've got people like Krishna Tunga who are thinking about it. And then you have a lot of other people in cricket who just are not thinking about it. And there's because there's no publicly accessible data, like in order to get this Crick Info information, you literally have to you know scrape it yourself mm-hmm. at this point. And so the, the first sort of big boom within cricket then becomes England when, again, massively inspired by Moneyball and the English team used Moneyball a lot in their test match cricket as well. They would they started tire, uh, purposely trying to tire out bowlers, which is, it's always been a sort of cricket fundamental, but they took it to a sort of, you know, a, well, a, a stats base, but also a zealot type situation. And another thing that came through at the same time is, uh, you know, the Hawkeye machines that they use in tennis? Yes. Mm-hmm. 
So that was also a cricket thing. And I can't remember if it started in cricket or tennis first, but I think it might have been cricket, but it was right. roughly at just, the same time. They've just started using those in baseball too. Oh, really? it's interesting it's taken that long, actually. So it's, mm-hmm. it was brought in as a TV gimmick um, and eventually became part of the umpiring system. It actually became part of the umpiring system well before they ever tested it to see if it actually worked, <laughs> which tells you a lot about how cricket does things. But so essentially, you've now got this system where there's all this Hawkeye data. And what happens is the English cricket team hire a guy called Nathan Lehman, who comes in and he is got a bit of a mass background, but he's also a cricket coach. He's also, he knows a lot of fairly important people within English cricket. And they want to hire a Moneyball guy. Um, and I, I think that was almost essentially what how they pitched the job to him. And so he comes in and one of the first things he says is, all this Hawkeye data, like of all these balls that are bowled around the world, like who uses that? And there's like, you know, a big look around the room and, and it's like, no one uses that. And he literally mm-hmm. says, well, if we buy that, can't we just tell? So in cricket, we have outswing and inswing. So mm-hmm. if you're a right-hand batsman, if the ball swings away from you, that's outswing. Okay. If the ball swings in, obviously it's inswing. And he's like, couldn't we just tell every bat- what every batsman in the world does when the ball swings away from them? Could we not tell what they do when the ball spins away off the surface? You know, could we not tell where, how they go when the ball's bowled at their head because you're, you're allowed to bowl a batsman's head in cricket? Mm-hmm. And so he starts asking all these perfectly sane and reasonable questions and that sort of changes things massively and they buy the data and he now owns a company called Crickviz, which basically do that professionally for a lot of different teams around the world. They also do it for broadcasters. And that was sort of the biggest boom. And then uh, weirdly after that was when all these people started realizing that you could scrape this information offline. I would say now there's probably maybe a thousand people around cricket. And I'm talking from professional to fully amateur people who have access to all this data and are basically coming up with their own metrics of, of how, uh, you know, how to improve cricket teams. And, you know, so as I said before, we had, you have um, batting average and bowling average. We added economy and uh, uh, strike rate to that. Um, now, you know, uh, we've got, I've got uh, something that I use called true economy, which is like, a comp- which is sort of like the truce using percentage in, in basketball is sort of where I got the idea. Uh, there's weighted averages to work out, you know, uh, because cricket has, you, you might be playing against Scotland, the team I work for one week, which is a sort of a new professional team. And the next week you might be playing against India, which is, you know, the richest, uh, one of the richest sporting teams in the world. So the quality of the players is obviously massively different, mm-hmm. you know, for weighted average. As, as I said, there's also the grounds um, and the pitches. <laughs> Uh, which play a huge thing. So you, you have to factor that in. So there's a ground in Guyana where it's basically fucking impossible to hit the ball off the square because the pitch is made of dog shit. Um, <laughs> and then you've got uh, Nottingham uh, where uh, you and I could hit sixes. Um, it's so small and the pitch is so f- so flat. So you have, to, you have to start putting that in. So all those things are sort of coming in. But th- the reason we haven't had as many big booms is because it hasn't been, the, none of the information's open. So CrickViz, who own the Hawkeye data, are the only company that I'm aware of that own the Hawkeye data. Um, mm-hmm. And they obviously, they're a small company anyway that, you know, they'd be, compared, you compare them to someone like Driveline in baseball, I think uh-huh. they would be a fraction of the size with a fraction of the staff. No one else has access to that. And then when you're talking about this scraping offline, a few people have that, but they don't always have the proper metrics to put in because obviously those are two different skill sets. And so, so you, you might have at this stage, 
if I'm being optimistic, a thousand people sort of looking at, at, at advanced um, analytics, whereas you probably have more subscribers on your website, uh, on your <laughs> podcast that can do that in baseball. <laughs> and so we've had a, sort of little explosions. England certainly had a massive explosion with, with using the Moneyball tactics and then using the, the Hawkeye data. We've had little teams, some teams in T20 cricket have some really good success. So the West Indies team, basically. So West Indies cricket, to give you a very quick history lesson on West Indies cricket from 1975 to 1994 they were arguably the best sporting team in the world and they're a collection of Caribbean islands they're not one nation and they came together and they worked out that they could bowl really 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 fast and that they had a lot of guys who could bowl really really fast and they were going to use all of those guys at once and basically scare the shit out of everyone. It, ch- it cha- literally changed the way that players protected themselves with equipment because these guys were so good and so fast. And then their batsmen also came on. So they dominated cricket for 19 years. And then for the next 10 to 15 years, they were a bit like how Golden State's playing in the NBA at the moment. Uh, just an absolute shambles. You couldn't even tell if players wanted to play. They had trouble keeping their best players because they wanted to go and play in club teams. And, and it became a real problem. Except for that when T20 came along, it turned out that the West Indies, again, had this natural advantage in that they have a lot of players who like to hit sixes, which is when you hit the ball over the rope. So cricket's version of a home run or a three-pointer, I suppose. And they worked out using analytics. If they basically played a bit like, I suppose you would say, well, a bit like modern baseball with teams going for home runs more than trying to get the ball in play. Mm-hmm. Um, or a bit like, you know, the Houston Rockets in, in, in basketball. They worked out analytically that, if they go for more sixes and are smart about it, um, no other team can hit as many sixes as them and that they would win. So they won two World T20 titles. And if it wasn't for infighting, they probably would have won three in a row. Then we had a, a bunch of smaller successes in T20 franchise cricket. So club cricket is now, for the first time ever, sort of almost as big as international cricket. And uh, we've had successes in, in the Pakistan League, the England League, and the Indian League. And maybe you could also suggest in the Australian League with various different strategies, most of which came from analytic mindsets of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, just, just thinking about the game differently and, you know, taking a new thing. So it, it's still quite slow. I would say off the top of my head, there's probably 300 professional cricket teams in the world. Of those, there's probably about 25 that are taking it anywhere near seriously. Huh. I think the last three times I've worked for a team in T20 cricket as an analyst, I've been the first analyst I've ever had. <laughs> um, I, when I walked in, like, and when I say, like, they had no analysis, like, I, when I walked into the um, St. Lucia Stars in the Caribbean Premier League, they didn't even, they weren't even capturing video. So I was like, can you just give me a link to all the video from last year? And that, there was this like a blank stare. <laughs> um, yeah. They had no, they, they didn't even have the scorecards from the last year. So I couldn't even manufacture anything. So, you know, there's certainly, it's certainly got a long way to go, but it's, it's been a very interesting, maybe last three or four years as it started to explode. Well, that's fascinating. It's kind of like uh, it's a little like the His Dark Materials books, where you have all these different interlocking worlds, and they're similar in many ways, but in other ways they're just completely unrecognizable. So you have cricket and baseball, which are very closely related as sports, and then there are a lot of common elements in these origin stories. You know, someone just painstakingly recording things manually, <laughs> and and then it moving to a forum, and that kind of being the breeding ground for all of this. Except then. 
it takes a lot longer to catch on and there are no fielding stats and it's just a, a much slower moving process. So that's sort of fascinating how it's uh, similar in a lot of ways, but also very different. So I, I was going to end by asking you then what the dramatic changes in the game have been and whether they've been good or bad, but maybe there just haven't been that many dramatic changes yet. But in baseball, for instance, you get different types of players now than you used to because their skills are more valued or you get certain strategies falling out of fashion and certain types of pitches are more common or you know strikeouts are more common than they used to be and these are all related to analytics but maybe it's not pervasive enough for that to be the case in cricket but if it is has it been a a benefit or has it detracted from it in terms of entertainment value or the style of play or, you know, how, how different is it? Like is positioning different the way that it is in baseball where you have shifts now because you have data on where the ball goes, or is it just not really used enough to, to really provoke that kind of sweeping change? Well, weirdly cricket, that was one of the few things that cricket was massively ahead of baseball in, and we've always had shifts partly Uh because I think the bats are flatter. So you can aim the ball um, easier but me as a, a non-baseball uh, fan, I could never understand why that you guys just didn't move the field more. It's yeah. <laughs> quite clear to me that, 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 I mean, having watched any sport, whether it's golf, cricket, tennis, people have a general, like a swing of where they like to swing. So I, I found that very interesting in baseball. But yeah, in cricket, I, look, you're right. I don't think we've had as many seismic changes, but there's been some really interesting ones, especially of recent times. When when the T20 came in, so that's the 20 over format game came in. So I said that was around 2003. There was this thought amongst the game, although I don't think it was thought very uh, very much by people who can think, but certainly there was there was a feeling that spinners. So we have bowlers who bowl at uh, almost almost fifty percent the pace mm-hmm. of of a, a normal bowler, if you will, and because of that, they use by flighting the ball, they change their pace a lot. Um, obviously, they spin the ball sometimes in both directions, usually just in one direction off the surface, and everyone thought that they would disappear. In, in cricket because of, of these limited overs. You know, the fact that if you're trying to hit sixes all the time and one guy's bowling 55 miles an hour and the other guy's bowling 90 miles an hour, uh, you're probably going to try and hit the guy who bowls 55 miles an hour for six mm-hmm. a lot more. Also, the guys who bowl 55 miles an hour can't bowl at your head. Uh, <laughs> so that does change the dynamics of that a little bit. But it turned out that when you're trying to hit lots of sixes, spinners who can spin the ball both ways become incredibly important, especially if you can't pick it out of the hand, which, you know, not all bowlers have that ability. It's a bit mm-hmm. like, you know, baseball. Some pitchers are better at hiding their, their stuff than others. And spin bowling is very much like that, um, except slowed down about half the pace. And so this sudden uh, uh, this sudden surge of these guys who could spin the ball both ways. And, you know, I don't know how much you know about the rise of Afghanistani cricket. But basically, <laughs> basically, Afghanistan have never been good at any sport, right? Uh, they've never played sport. They've been at war for... The whole time sport's been a thing, they've been at war with themselves or someone else, right? And so a bunch of these Afghanistanis come out of refugee camps in Pakistan and they literally walk back across the Hindu Kush mountains with this new sport of cricket and they nail it almost straight away. And so one of the top paid players in all the professional cricket is a guy called Rashid Khan, who at 19, although he probably wasn't 19, but to be fair with most of those Afghan- Afghanistani guys, they don't know their exact birth dates. So it's not like they're faking the system as much as they literally don't know when they were born. But he was quite young anyway and comes from nowhere and suddenly becomes the, one of the highest paid players in, in cricket uh, because he can spin the ball both directions and, and a little bit quicker than other people can. No one saw that coming. 
And that was very much an analysis thing quite early on of teams suddenly realizing that if you could find someone who could spin the ball both ways, they were much more value than a spinner who could spin it one way, which in test cricket, that the longer formatted game is not as important because it's a, you know, a different format. So that was, that was one. We had one uh, recently in, we just had a cricket world cup for our 50 over competition. I'm really sorry about all these different formats. Everyone. <laughs> so that, that's the most famous World Cup that we have in cricket. And suddenly everyone turned up at the World Cup and started bowling bounces to each other. And bounces when you try and hit the batsman in the head intentionally. And it completely, you, you're talking about the, the, um, the, the shift in baseball, completely changed where the field was. And the, basically what they worked out was that it's a very, in the middle overs of a one-day game, teams accumulate. So they don't take as many risks because they're trying to keep as much of their resources because batsmen can only bat once. So once you're out, you're out. So you don't want too many of your batsmen to take too many chances in the middle overs. And so what teams worked out, and this was 100%, I think it might have been through England, uh, but it was certainly through using Hawkeye data and using um, analytics in general, is that if you bowl at a batsman's head, there's no real shot he can play to accumulate. He can duck it. But that gives you that gives you a dot ball, which in cricket means no run. Or you can play an attacking shot and try and hit it off your face, basically for six. Which, as you can tell, is I mean, it's not a good thing. Um, and you know, many back in the old days, batsmen have died missing that. We actually had a, an Australian cricketer died five or six years ago uh, missing a bouncer. It hit him on the back of the skull. And he died in a professional game. And it had to happen a lot. So it's a dangerous thing as well. But you, so you're trying to pick this ball up if you face. And so in the middle overs, the teams just went for it. And that was a huge change from in, in the old days. You, you would bowl your spinners in the middle over. You try to get the ball quite soft. So because, as I said, we use the same ball. So what you want, you, the softer the ball, the less likely at the end of the game, they're going to hit sixes off you because mm-hmm. the ball's not as hard. So um, that was a change. I've also, cricket in those limited overs games, the 50 over format and the 20 over format, we're seeing a bit of a change in. So imagine baseball where you you had to use five different pitches in every game, but those pitches would also, all of them would have to bat as well. Mm-hmm. You would have to factor in how well those pitches can bat. Right. And so what cricket basically did was they would... With four of the pitchers, four of the bowlers, they go, do you know what? It doesn't matter how much they bat. One of them will probably be handy and he'll be okay. The other three might be terrible, but we're willing to take that chance. But but in the middle, we need that one last batsman who can bat. And, and we call that the all-rounder position, especially in limited overs. And for years, you would basically take a very ordinary bowler who bowled usually part-time spin or part-time medium pace, very slow, uh, no skills really, maybe a, cle- a clever player. Do you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, maybe maybe they're a good athlete and so they can they can still get through a few overs or they were quite clever and they, they'd wangle out a couple of overs or a couple of wickets. And we've now seen through analytics that it just doesn't work, that I don't know how much you know about weak link sports and strong link sports. Yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Well, so in cricket, you basically batting, especially in, T20, in the limited overs games, is a, uh, is a strong link sport uh-huh. and bowling is a weak link sport. And we've worked that out through analytics. So now what you have is you, you have teams who come in usually with, with one fewer recognized batsman knowing that they will have to back, you know, their top order a little bit more. And so that uh, you're, so you've, you've got, you've got to use five bowlers in limited overs and they've each, that none can bowl more than uh, 20% of the overs. So in a, in a 20 over game, that's four overs a player. And in a 
50 over game, that's 10 overs per player. So if you're going to wangle 10 overs out of a part-timer, you're better off to, you know, analytics say anyway, you're better off to use a frontline bowler in that position and have a reduced batting than the other way around. So that is something that, that's going on quite a bit at the moment. And I, I've already talked about, you know, the, the West Indies and their, um, and their six hitting, you know, that, that's been a huge change. And, you know, that you can only see, you know, weirdly cricket has got fit before baseballers. Mm. You know, I don't know why that was, but for whatever reason, when Australia, maybe because Australia is such a physical fitness country, you know, we were such a, you know, an outdoorsy culture that when we took over cricket, we made sure everyone got fit. So there was a, a very, a huge period there where cricketers were massively more fit than baseballers. And now what we've worked out is it used to be that bowlers. So if we wanted, if we wanted to hit sixes in cricket in the 1990s, we would send in a bowler because a bowler would be the big strapping guy who could bowl really quick. So uh-huh. he would be, you know, six foot seven, six foot eight, big shoulders sort of person. So he'd be sent in to hit the sixes. Whereas now the batsmen are a bit more like what you would see if a, you know, as a designated hitter, like big, some, some of them are, you know, probably a little bit overweight, which has always been a bit of a cricket thing, but now it's more a muscular thing. So a lot of players are just working on the gym, uh, for power. Um, mm-hmm. And so you now have batsmen who are huge and way big. You know, they, they look like, you know, major league hitters, which we didn't have before. In fact, it was always thought back in the old days of cricket that short batsmen were better. Whereas now some of the batsmen look like they could eat the, not the old cricketers. <laughs> so, and again, that comes from, you know, understanding that if you're going to take a risk, and it's very similar, this is where it is very similar to baseball. If you're going to take a risk of hitting the ball into the field where there are fielders trying to run you out or, and catch you out, and your other option is to um, hit the ball over their head and for a much bigger reward, you're better off analytically to take the much bigger reward and go for the six than mm-hmm. you are to keep the ball in play and give the team a chance of either catching you out or, or running you out. Yeah. And so that's probably the biggest change that we've had in cricket is we didn't have range hitting in cricket until the late 90s. And I don't know when it started in baseball, but I'm assuming it was a long way before that. But we didn't have a period where cricket cricketers would go out and see how far they could hit the ball. We didn't really have a period. We didn't have anything where people were working on uh, on their power or the, you know um, or hitting more sixes. Mm-hmm. And also the, the other thing that, that that we that we came in and part of this was analytics and part of this was just the natural evolution of the game is you know, I talked about baseball being really silly and not noticing that they should shift the field. Right. Well, one of the funny things about cricket is how for a very long time, different parts of the field weren't used. So even though we have a bigger field than baseball and there's more gaps, um, cricketers wouldn't hit the balls in certain areas because uh, they thought it was too risky. And to start, to start with, they literally thought it was an, it wasn't an act that a gentleman would do. And so you wouldn't, ha- you wouldn't hit the ball off your pads. So, you know, your pads are on your legs. You wouldn't hit the ball on your pads um, to a, a position on the field, fine leg, which is sort of toward, past where the dugout would be in baseball and that sort of angle because that was like that wasn't a place that you hit the ball and then as cricket started to go and develop people started hitting the ball into more places but the one place that they never hit the ball was over the wicketkeeper's head so over the catcher's head which is a perfectly legal move in cricket and there's nothing mm-hmm. to stop you doing it just it's just an unwritten rule <laughs> yeah no one had invented the shot essentially as much as anything mm-hmm. but as you get these sort of developments in in the game and the way that the game was changed and when people started to hit more and more fours and sixes which was again a lot of that was analytically driven through the way that australia was playing their game at that stage before the west indies sort of took that over teams were like you know, let's let's imagine you were like a jobbing cricketer at 28 and you're not a big guy 
well, you, if you're going to have to score boundaries at the same rate as everyone else, you're going to have to work out how. So um, there was a, a, a Zimbabwean batsman, Douglas Marillier, who started scooping the ball over his shoulder. And then there was an Australian batsman called Ryan Campbell, who literally started turning around, facing 85, 90 mile an hour bowlers, turning around and trying to hit them backwards. And then we had another player called Tilakaratni Dilshan from Sri Lanka, who would almost, it was, it's worth looking at this. The shot is called the Dill Scoop. Now, he's done this against people who've bowled 95 miles an hour, and it's worth looking at it because he literally, it's like he gets down and prays and then hits the ball directly over the badge on his helmet, straight back over his head. It's a phenomenal shot. And so now we have lots of different versions of those shots. And, you know, from now that we have more fielding data and we have more access to what we call wagon wheels in cricket, which is basically where batsmen hit the ball, we now have the ability to go out and say to a to a batsman, you don't usually score in this area. This bowler bowls this particular length and he bowls it really well. The only shot that you can play is literally over your left shoulder or um, over your right shoulder. And that is an analytics. It was a movement sort of come out of necessity through cricketers trying to catch up with the power movement that then hit the analytics movement to be able to say this bowler will bowl this length you can now play this stupid shot that you think your friends are crazy for even thinking about <laughs> and it was sort of the ma- the meshing of the two before that I mean, up when those shots existed you can imagine everyone just thought the batsmen were all crazy and that someone was going to to die and i've seen some the english cricketer beth morgan uh, when she was playing for the women's side try and play this scoop and literally off the middle of her bat scoot the ball into her throat which is probably i think probably better at to hit a woman there because she doesn't have an Adam's apple. I don't, I'm True. not an anatomy expert, but I would have thought that that would kill a guy uh, on the Adam's apple. I'm just tapping my Adam's apple to check now. Um, but, but you know, that was 10 years ago and people like Beth Morgan were seen as, as crazy, whereas now it's such a normal shot. And what we're working out in cricket from, you know, uh, this extra analysis is that a lot of batting is either trying to hit the ball over the, the, the fence and hit a six or it's manipulating the field. And batsmen have already, already always known that. It's, it's the same way that they were, you know, bat, batters always knew in baseball that a home run was worth a lot and that a walk was quite handy. But there's a difference between kind of knowing it as a general truth and actually being told, look, you, when you manipulate the field, this is the effect that it has on the opposition. Right. And they have to change their tactic and, and those sorts of things. And, and, and all these sorts of things are still in their infancy only because, you know, I, what, I think one of the great things about the baseball movement is that, Everyone was being fact checked all the time because mm-hmm. it would, you know, it was done publicly. Every, a lot of people had access to the information. A lot of people, you know, through through Bill James's work and then through online as well, you know, you would put up a theory of of you know uh, of a new stat and ten people could have a have a look at it and 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 have a go. Problem with cricket is that you were talking about how similar it is to baseball. In some of the way, in some ways, it's like no other sport in the world. I don't think there's another sport in the world that is so so international dependent. Yeah. So when England get an advantage in analytics, right? If you think, you know, Houston Astros are, uh, you know, good at keeping their information to themselves. England don't tell anyone. And uh-huh. They're the only ones who own this. And it's not like you can just go out and buy an edutronic camera and catch up to them. You know, Hawkeye might not even sell this information on to anyone else because they maybe didn't even realize how, how useful it was when they first sold it. You know, and so... So there's almost there's almost like you know the cricket teams almost become like governments and and they are really almost like governments within the sport and so they they're slow to move on to these things and then they're also sl- the information doesn't drip out of them very quickly because they're trying to hold on to these advantages yeah. and and because there isn't this big open thing so so England have been using weighted averages to work out um, the quality of of their batsmen for for a while 
but I've never seen anyone in the cricket analytics community sort of have access to the weighted average numbers to see if it even stacks up. So mm-hmm. England could be thinking they've got this incredible um, system, but no, it's not being fact-checked the way that, you know, I'm more of a basketball fan than a baseball fan, but, you know, um, John Hollinger's PER, like people are always looking at the, you know, that and how to improve it and how do we make it better and, you mm-hmm. know, when we can trust it, when we can't trust it. Whereas England are literally using this weighted averages thing and no one outside of maybe three or four people that they employ um, know what it is and understand what the, the, the formula behind it. And you find that, you know, even with a lot of my stuff, I put some of the stuff out when I worked for ESPN. But even then, you know, ESPN don't want formulas <laughs> in their articles. Right. So, you know, no one's really testing um, these sorts of things. And because there aren't many of us anyway, usually what happens is you end up with like a hundred different versions of roughly the same thing. And so, it, you know, it's just... It's not going anywhere because of all these different factors. And cricket is such an interesting sport because of that international aspect of it. You know, you've got a country like Sri Lanka who, you know, which every person listening to this podcast should visit Sri Lanka once in their life. It is one of the great places I've ever been. I'm not at all biased by the fact I married a woman of Sri Lankan descent. It really is. The food is incredible. The country is incredible. The people are incredible. The beaches. I, I could go on. Sri Lanka has 20 million people. They've obviously been involved in civil wars for a very long time. And they can be the world's best cricket team. And they've won two World Cups in their time. Their football team is ranked 200th in the world. And I've seen them play, Ben. They they have earned that ranking. (laughs) You know, and so that cricket has these sort of random countries like Afghanistan and Zimbabwe that you they don't play any other sports and they're not good at it. So there's no professional sporting infrastructure within Afghanistan to support cricket becoming more professional in those areas. So you've actually seen of recent times that the teams that are sort of improving the most um, outside the major teams are places like Scotland and Ireland, the Netherlands, USA will be another one because there's a structure of how sports improve in those places and how they get more professional and they will hire analysts because that's what other sports are doing. And cricket is, you know... Eh, we we can't play cricket in Afghanistan because no one will tour there. As we speak today, Pakistan have just played their first test match in over 10 years at home because the Sri Lankan team was shot on a tour there. Some of their players were shot through the leg. People died from a terrorist attack. Uh, mm-hmm. So p- teams just stopped touring there. You know, it has problems. <laughs> it has problems that it needs to overcome that sadly for people like me are far more important than the fact that we don't have adequate cricket stats on the TV yet. Yes. But we're getting there. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, this has been very educational. It's amazing just how many parallels there are, but also because it's a worldwide sport and there are so many teams in so many countries and so many languages and the information is not out there publicly. I can understand how it sort of makes progress in fits and starts as opposed to a very concerted way where one team does something and all the other teams notice and pick up on it and start doing it themselves. So it seems like much more of a a halting process, but gradually getting there so well yeah sorry just to add to that yeah. i know you want, you're trying to wrap up and get me off but i've got, <laughs> just to, just to show how weird it is so we have all these big leagues now so the indian premier league is huge but it's a two month long league right so players are paid a fortune to play in it on a per week basis but it's only two months long some of these leagues like i've been hired for leagues and a week before they're supposed to start they just fold uh-huh. And they don't even exist. And these are with major, huge name international players. And most leagues run between four weeks and six weeks. So they're like pop-up 
So it's it, you. I, I was talking um, to your co-host Sam about this when when I took the job with St. Lucia Stars. It's like so you, when you guys took over, you know, your baseball team. You had mm-hmm. obviously some of the worst professional baseballers in the country, um, and some good guys that you obviously picked with your <laughs> with your metric. <laughs> but you know, you had the lowest level. Whereas mm-hmm. I came in and my first day on the job, I had David Warner, um, one of the most famous players on the planet. I had Kyron Pollard, one of the best players on the planet, in the change room with me. And then in four weeks' time. We all went our separate ways and the franchise came back the next year. And it literally, when it came back the next year, it had no owner and a different name. Yeah. Um, and so you, you, there's, there's almost no way to, you know, keep the continuity going because you come up with a great idea with this one team and the next year the league may not exist. Yeah, right. That's a problem. <laughs> I will link to uh, a lot of your articles and writing and research about this if people want to dive into it even more and uh, give you some tips on how baseball has handled these problems, although it's uh, a different game with different challenges, but there is certainly some overlap there. But you can follow Jared on Twitter at a Jared Kimber. We thank you for, for coming on and, and sharing your insight. I've learned a lot about cricket, although I didn't know much to start. <laughs> and I think I did it in a way that you in no way need to understand anything about cricket <laughs> to understand this podcast, I hope. I think so. I followed most of what you said, I think, and I knew nothing to start. So, <laughs> And if that isn't the case, I blame you, not me. You could have stopped me at any time. But no, I, I, I mean, look, realistically, you know, all these different sports, it's, you know, it's fundamental problems of just trying to work out how to play them better, isn't it? It's, yeah. That that's what that's what your podcast is all about, and that's what my work has been in, in cricket over the last couple of years. And you know, you, you I always feel bad for the players. So you know, you just want to give them the best information that you can, and that's mm-hmm. not always been the case. Yeah. Well, we wish you luck in the future. I hope it becomes more open and public and peer-reviewed, <laughs> but you're doing your best, it sounds like. No worries. Thanks, Ben. All right. That will do it for today. Thank you for listening. Some of our listeners posted a screenshot of a cricket broadcast on Boxing Day. It was the match between Australia and New Zealand, and on the screen, there was something called Smash Factor. It showed the bat speed and the launch angle and the quality of contact and the power generated by the swing, sort of like exit velocity and launch angle in baseball, but with a much cooler name. Smash Factor. This is actually a little different from StatCast, which is tracking the ball. Smash Factor is essentially a swing sensor, which of course exists in baseball also, but not in major league games and not on broadcasts, and so we don't really have good public bat speed measurements. So this is a cool addition to Cricket Broadcast. This was a Fox Cricket innovation, and Cricket has kind of been a leader when it comes to integrating technology into broadcast. Even though the analytical movement has been behind baseballs, some of you may know about the Snickometer or Snicko which uses sound waves to tell whether a ball touches the bat in cricket. And there's another technology used in cricket for a similar purpose called Hotspot, which uses infrared cameras to see if there was contact. And some of you may remember that Fox ported that technology over to baseball in the 2011 World Series. And there was this disputed play where Adrian Beltre fouled a ball off his foot and they had this Hotspot technology so you can see that it did touch his foot and therefore was foul. I will link to some articles about that in a video from the broadcast. That kind of just went away in baseball. It didn't really catch on. It's not essential, but I thought it was kind of cool and it, it would be helpful every now and then in determining, say, a foul tip or a hit by pitch, maybe some other applications even. So cricket's really leading the way when it comes to ball bat sport broadcasting presentation. Great names too. Smash Factor, Snickometer, Hotspot. Love it. So thanks for listening to the series so far. And next time we will switch over to some individual sports and talk tennis and golf. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to Patreon 
patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount and help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Kyle Lewis, Matt Gillette, Patrick Green, Tom Elmer, and Ben Leonards. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectivelywild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and my regular co-hosts, Meg and Sam, via email at podcast at fangraphs.com or via the Patreon nesting system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. And we'll be back with an extra episode this week. Talk to you soon. Skating away, skating away, skating away.